For Talking Additive Episode 8, we offer a special topic-focused show. I'm talking with three guests today who each offer expertise from their own perspectives about the food and beverage industry. First, we meet with Ultimaker's application engineer, Jeremy Avers, who for the past two years has concentrated his efforts on rapidly expanding opportunities for Ultimaker's customers within food and beverage and packaging contexts. The food and beverage production lines are pretty agile. So I saw some really nice examples of where they completely rebuilt a production line to uh, produce hand sanitizers. Next, we meet with industry 3D design and additive manufacturing adoption consultant, Steve Cox, who has been watching closely what is happening among traditional manufacturers who are testing the waters of additive manufacturing for the first time. One reflecting on the kind of food and beverage industry in light of the recent pandemic in the run-up to this particular interview, I was thinking about the food and beverage industry has not had the luxury of, of some other industries of just being able to shut down temporarily. And finally, we will meet with longtime additive consultant and journalist Joris Peels, executive editor at 3dprint.com and co-host of the 3D Pod podcast. So that's key to survival. These designers are turning to 3D printing for advantage, for a key part of them staying ahead of the market. Why are we focusing on the food and beverage manufacturing industry? And why are we focusing right now? It is our opinion that this is the critical time for the food and beverage industry to seize on new roles for additive manufacturing within aspects of the manufacturing processes, safety, and efficiencies to stabilize and strengthen this field for the new global economy. I'm Matt Griffin, and this is Talking Additive, a 3D printing podcast made possible by Ultimaker. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business innovators and allies to discuss the impact of adopting additive manufacturing. How does adopting additive manufacturing benefit a business today, and what will be possible in the future? Welcome to our eighth episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, and materials that enable professional designers and engineers to innovate every day. Its global team of over 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to digital distribution and local manufacturing. This podcast episode is just one aspect of a wider exploration of the role of 3D printing in the food and beverage manufacturing industry this season at Ultimaker. In fact, right now, if you visit ultimaker.com and follow the applications category through to food and beverages, you can experience an array of resources and case studies that highlight the rapid evolution and tremendous opportunity that we have discovered collaborating with leading brands within this fast-paced traditional industry as its top innovators commit to adopting to additive manufacturing. There, you can sign up to download case studies, watch a global webinar, read a food and beverage manufacturing playbook, and even solicit expert advice on how you can apply all of these resources and best practices uncovered by our research in your own companies. Our goal today is to provide you some additional context for what we have learned about this field recently during the disruption of the COVID-19 pandemic. First up in our conversation, I'd like to introduce you to Ultimaker's very own food and beverage superstar, application engineer Jeremy Avers. 
Over the past two years, Jeremy has focused his attention on supporting Ultimaker's top manufacturing brands with a concentration on food and beverage. Through his efforts, he's traveled all around the world and has thus had the opportunity to see for himself the impact 3D printing solutions are having in plants and factories across the globe. He has become quite the expert in helping customers to identify opportunities suited to FFF technology, and drawing on his engineering background and CAD design skills, he has himself developed a portfolio of unique application strategies in previously unexplored areas for 3D printing that are taking factory staff and manufacturing brands by storm. While Jeremy and his colleagues have, like much of the world lately, been confined to their homes and hometowns, I met with Jeremy online during a short break between sessions of the virtual site visits he has continued to hold with manufacturers across the world as Ultimaker customers continue to innovate and expand their capabilities. My name is Jeremy Evers. I'm an application engineer at Ultimaker for about two and a half years now. My background is in industrial design engineering at the University of Delft. And at Ultimaker, I assist in kickstarting 3D printing at enterprise clients. And I'm giving workshops, designing a lot of stuff in CAD. I do a lot of 3D printing, so that's really nice. And I do a lot of problem solving for applications. And and through this, you've had a chance to go and visit sites all over. Can you tell me a little bit about that? The chance to really see inside how different automation systems work? Yeah. So as my role as application engineer, I visit different kind of clients in different kind of verticals. So in one week, you're visiting in the aerospace industry and another week, you're visiting the railway companies and another uh, week, you're in uh, a production line of a big uh, food and beverage uh, company. It's really diverse and also the really the different uh, countries you visit, you see huge cultural differences, but also really business differences as well. What are some trends that you've been seeing over the past two years in terms of how FFF 3D printing works in manufacturing? What roles it's filling in manufacturing? Yeah, so when I started, you had some success stories. But over the years, uh, what I've seen is there was really this increased adoption of 3D printing. And people really saw this as Industry 4.0, one of the technologies they need to look out for. And also keep in mind that this might become something which could be really valuable for them. So you saw companies beginning with some really low risk product development with 3D printing, but quite quickly they realized that they can also do manufacturing aids and end use parts to optimize even further. And what I've seen also that they were looking for creative ways to optimize their production, which you would not go for with conventional manufacturing. And that they really needed this knowledge of 3D printing. And because I was already in 3D printing quite a while, also during my study, I was already gathering the knowledge of the future, basically. So I already had the knowledge the clients were missing. And that's when we started to translate this knowledge into knowledge that our clients would understand and really start adopting this technology more and more. And that you see uh, currently that this is a really normal way of working with 3D printing. So that was really a nice trend. Tell me a little bit more. You say that they were looking for creative ways to solve problems. So they were already working with some safety tools. These were quite universal. You could use it on different machines. And then there was a guy thinking like, yeah, we 
use a lot of time to set up these uh, safety tools. But actually, for each different situation on the line, we could use really custom-made safety equipment. So that's when they started really investing time in this safety optimization that they made really custom-made for each uh, scenario and each environment. And at the end, it really increased the, the sense of safety also for the operators, which was also really important at that facility. Have they been excited to develop these new custom tools once they hit on this being an opportunity? Yeah, initially it was like, okay, what is this new technology meaning for us? Does it replace us? But then if you make clear that it's just enhancing their work experience and sensation as well, then you really see that they open up and they come up with also some other ideas which they uh, think there are pain points that they come to you and say, hey, you solved this for me. I have a, a more of a sense of safety. But can you now also focus on these other pain points which we are facing every day? So you see them opening up even more uh, up to now. So yeah, that's also, I think, a good a good improvement. And who are you talking to? Who are the people being involved in the additive adoption in these manufacturing contexts? There are different roles. So you really have the the operators, which are on the line, but of course, also the people who engineered the line. So like line uh, engineers, maintenance engineers, also facility managers or department managers are involved, uh, procurement, for example. So you've got the really different kind of departments uh, which are stakeholders in the 3D printing uh, projects. Ultimaker as a whole has been hearing from customers in food and beverage that there are specific roles for FFF that are really exciting to them. And no one knows this better than you. In fact, it sounds like from your journeys around with these customers, uh, you've helped to sort of create that excitement um, about the possibilities there. I'd love to hear your thoughts about specifically the packaging industry and food and beverage, how that fits into the overall manufacturing market in terms of 3D printing. Yeah, as you mentioned, I've been to different kind of verticals and you see, of course, there are different kind of products being manufactured, uh, some on like a, a lower scale, some on high scale as well. And when I visited uh, the food and beverage companies, one thing really came to my mind that the production speeds were so high so the amounts they produce on a daily basis, it's not like tens of hundreds of products, but it's really like thousands and ten thousands of, um, of products every day. So if something breaks down or they have issues with something, costs can increase dramatically. If something stops for an hour, you will see the cost and it's like, wow, if we can tackle this. So really this production operational excellence of a facility that was really uh, one of the main key drivers for 3D printing in these food and beverage companies. And also for the lead times sometimes, because they need this part fairly quickly to indeed keep the line running again. But some lead times are also really high, which you can also really tackle with 3D printing by just printing it on the location. And that's a pretty new experience, right? I mean, while plants have had machine shops in the past, for sure, this seems to bring a whole new set of tools. Exactly. So before they might indeed have a, a shop in, internally, um, some facility don't have that. 
So they need to look for creative ways and ideas to quickly adapt and, and solve the problem. So you see like these improvised solutions, which might work for a day or a day or two. But if you look into a broader perspective and you need other creative solutions, then 3D printing is definitely uh, one to go for. When we talk about food and beverage, for our listeners who are not in food and beverage, what does that mean? How would you describe that industry vertical? Well, food and beverage is basically everything we eat, we drink, that's packaged into some sort of packaging. So if you have, for example, beer that's in a can or you have some soda, which is in a bottle, and that's all produced in this food and beverage company. So you have the the liquid and you have the packaging that needs to be combined. So the packaging needs to be filled with this product. It needs to be labeled as well. It needs to be um, kept or it needs to be closed. And then it needs to be packed in bigger volumes. And this will be shipped out to different countries or supply it to uh, your local uh, supermarket. Now, you've done a lot of work with uh, breweries, which has been sort of exciting story for Ultimaker. Just so I understand, where is the bottling taking place? Is it physically at or near the brewery? Or are those completely separate operations? No, at most uh, breweries, you have a, a brew house where they really brew the beer for a couple of, uh, of weeks. And after that's been brewed and been finished, it needs to be bottled. And there you see that the most opportunities uh, where you actually put your your content in the bottles and then labeling and, and packing it. So there are different processes. And after it's being packed or put in a bottle, it's being put in a logistic environment and there it will be basically supplied to uh, supermarkets. And from your experience visiting these food and beverage customers, what are the kinds of things that are happening in those packaging operations? You mentioned bottling, putting into cans, and putting labels on. So that's really focused on the process of uh, moving, transporting, and uh, labeling products. But on the other hand, you need to make sure that you meet the demands. So sometimes there's a demand for one format and um, a few hours later there's a demand for a different format so you need to change the production line for this new format and you need to make adjustments of the height of the labels or uh, the size of the bottle you're capping so you need to do some sort of changeover of the line of course you want to make this as efficient as possible so if you have less time doing uh, this changeover you can run the production faster so there you really see a lot of opportunities. The lines need to be maintained and need to be cleaned as well. And there you also see opportunities for 3D printing to make this shorter and more efficient. That's, that's really helpful insight into food and beverage and how it works. One of the things that comes up a lot in recent discussions, both ones that we're having with customers and that you see online and at uh, trade shows around the food and beverage industry, is the complexity of logistics and the questions of stability of the supply chain. Even before the current COVID-19 situation, there were discussions that the supply chain is unstable and it's looking to be continuing in that route, leaving you know manufacturers, packagers to need to find creative ways to make sure they can keep doing what they're doing 
and and reach their targets. Can you tell me about that story, what you're seeing, and maybe provide a, a like a clearer view of what people mean when they say unstable supply chain? Yeah. So can you imagine that uh, that your line is running? And suddenly something breaks down and you want to have this up and running as quick as possible again. And you need this certain part, but you don't have it or you have it on a shelf. But because it has been on the shelf for too long, it's either eh, you, you cannot use it anymore because it's dried out or there's inventory which is missing. So you don't have the actual part. Yeah. And then you need the part really fast to still have your uh, line running uh, quickly again so there you will see that they have some huge problems with getting this this part uh, uh, in the company again so what you see especially in the african uh, countries there are a lot of logistical issues that you order a part and then you need to wait yeah six to nine months before your part actually enters uh, your facility uh, you see some creative ways of people flying with these parts, but now, yeah, there are so many travel restrictions that we cannot even travel as a person. So in that case, you really see that there are still these issues of getting the parts in the in the facility. And if you can print it where you need it and indeed when you need it, that is a huge advantage on logistical level. Well, six to nine months, that is quite a long time. What would happen if a critical item was not available and was being sent in? Would the packaging line stop? Well, what you see is that initially, yeah, the, the line is stopped because you cannot run it with, uh, with missing parts or they do some quick fixes, which holds up for a few hours maybe, and that you really see that they try to find local solutions. And in some cases... It might work to bridge the, uh, the the gap, but in most cases, it's it doesn't. So in this case, producing it really where you need it is the most optimal solutions. And there you see that people really adopt uh, this technology of 3D printing. Because otherwise, yeah, you cannot run a line where you have huge delays and huge delays in the food and be- beverage uh, companies are uh, incredibly uh, expensive. I, I want to ask you questions about COVID-19 and some of the effects, but I'm going to hold that to the end. I want to uh, go directly to some of these valuable insights, like the ones you've just been mentioning. The opportunities that 3D printing really brings to food and beverage. You've talked a little bit about things like bringing capabilities in-house, solving automation line problems and supply shortages, but that's just my list rattled off based on past discussions with you. If you were to in your mind, rank the opportunities that you find most exciting to food and beverage. What are the things that you think are really most important to this story? I think the most uh, interesting ones I've seen is to really make the uh, changeover process faster. You see all sorts of uh, opportunities there, not only in adjusting all the conveyor systems to the new format, but also minimizing cleaning time and also making pokeyoki applications. So if you have somebody who is new to the line and you only have to say him, okay, you need to change all these parts from red to green, well, he does his job and then immediately already did a changeover for the whole line. So you really see that possibility to have a lot of opportunities in changeover reduction. 
And the other thing is uh, safety. That was one which I, I didn't think about in the beginning. But then I really saw this thing really being adopted across all the breweries globally. That was really uh, something that I mentioned. Like, yeah, it's a sensitive topic, but there are a lot of aspects about safety, which you can tackle with 3D printing. When you were talking earlier about making custom safety pieces for equipment, is it such a great match because you really need a lot of custom safety items there? Is that really the opportunity or is there sort of more to it? Yeah, so safety can be in any kind of situation and you really need a perfectly adjustable uh, solution for it. So it can be to block a sensor, so it's not engaging the, the machine while somebody is doing maintenance, but also during cleaning that you need to clean some parts of the machines and there are sharp edges, for example, or there are chains which are being exposed that can all yeah, uh, basically damage an operator in uh, during his work and you want to minimize this uh, that, uh, or exclude that, uh, of course. And this really requires custom fit applications and really suited for a specific uh, situation. And there you see that there's basically one technology which can do that, and that's uh, 3D printing. And if you take that with, uh, with a really nice, uh, bright visual color that you really make it pop out uh, of the rest of the steel, people really know, okay, I need to uh, pay extra attention here. Or if they see a, a situation which can be uh, safer, with any kind of adjustment of uh, making uh, new labels or uh, blocking certain sensors or making some bumpers for areas where you uh, might uh, have a restricted area to reach it. Yeah, those are all examples of things you can do uh, easily with, with this technology. What are some other positive alterations to the line that you've been seeing customers doing with 3D printing? I've also seen that they really focus on parts which actually move the the products on the line because it's already packed in in the package, so you're not direct in contact with the, with the fluid or or the food. So that offers extra uh, freedom. So you see a lot of these wearing parts where you need to push something, which can be easily 3D printed, but currently is made from from steel or from other really expensive materials, which will wear down eventually and need to be uh, replaced, that you really see people replacing these parts with 3D printing. These are easy to design in most cases. There you can also see that you can use a wide variety of materials for different situations. So if you need a hard material for one situation and a soft material in another situation, you really see that you can also do this uh, with 3D printing. I'd already talked about faster changeovers, but what you can also think is about modularity. So instead of just doing color changing, you can also think about only changing a certain part of the format, but keeping the base the same. So you, what you see is that if you have a transporting module, which has a base where you can click in different formats, you can create this whole modular idea. So when you're running uh, one product or even five products at the same time, you can do this with these modular solutions. So by having these modular solutions, you can change what you're producing or packaging uh, more quickly. And, and why does that matter in general? Do you find from talking to Food & Bev 
customers that they really need to do more changeovers, that there are more sort of daily or weekly changes to what they're producing than in the past? Yeah, so you see this flexibility of changing to different formats is really becoming more and more because the consumers also have a behavior which is changing. So at one point of time, they are choosing a specific format and maybe the next day they would like to use a different format. So you need to be really flexible also in the in the formats you're producing. And of course, there's a certain need from different uh, uh, countries as well. So on the one end, you can have one line where you run a format, you do a changeover, run another format. But what you see now, this trend is coming more and more that you run different formats on the same line. So they're really thinking in an innovative way to adjust their equipment to do all these different formats, which the demand is high for, in one go. And so is that a way to really meet local needs even better? Yeah, I think if you can quickly produce what's needed locally or globally, then I see that really as a, as a big advantage. When we were first hearing from packaging and food and beverage companies, the initial excitement was often about bringing capabilities in-house and saving costs and time. But there's a sort of new story there, which is top brands and manufacturing plants working directly with their top suppliers to collaborate on how they can use 3D printed solutions to, to tighten a lot of processes and logistics. Yep. Definitely, because whenever a food and beverage company buys a line, of course, it buys the complete line also with the spare parts from the suppliers. And currently, you see that we engage with a lot of these food and beverage companies to really see, okay, you have these production lines, these parts can be improved. But what if we engage also with your suppliers, your tire one suppliers who normally supply these parts to open a discussion also with 3D printing to take them along with this technology. So later on, the suppliers don't have to ship the part. They can just provide the digital file or that a certain food and beverage company sees a pain point in the production line and ask the supplier to change the design or do some suggestions then the supplier can still produce these parts digitally for these major enterprise customers and still yeah still get uh, get their business so why do you think that's an exciting development because you're not directly competing then with your suppliers but you're actually uh, working together so cooperating to make sure that the food and beverage companies meet their operational excellence keep their lines running provide the formats for the demand as possible, and still these suppliers can maintain their clients and uh, produce uh, the parts or supply the parts that their clients need. We have talked a little bit in the past about what happened when COVID started hitting across the manufacturing landscape. Do you want to share a little bit about your observations of the effects of COVID on uh, food and beverage? What I saw is that the food and beverage production lines are pretty agile. So I saw some really nice examples of where they completely rebuilt a production line to uh, produce hand sanitizers, but also still using 3D printing for these kind of uh, format parts or they produce personal protection equipment. You saw that a lot. So they shifted from, okay, the breweries, they uh, slowed down production or they stopped production because 
people either need to uh, stay at home or basically the, the full country is in lockdown, but they still want to provide also this safe environment for the operators that you see that they print face shield brackets or door openers, water tap openers. So basically all the parts which people uh, touch or use frequently on a day, you see that they come up with solutions to minimize the risk of uh, getting the virus, which was already incredible to me. Uh, but also, besides producing this personal protection equipment for their operators or their employees, you also saw that they were printing these face shield brackets for local hospitals. So they really also gave back something to the community. And it's great that this was uh, achieved with uh, 3D printing. Yeah, it's an amazing story to see uh, how these manufacturers are also working closely with local hospitals. So th thanks for sharing that here. Jeremy, thank you very much for joining me. These are really great insights that you've collected by experiencing out in the field what these customers are doing and thinking. So thank you very much for joining. Good luck and also have a, have a nice weekend. Appreciate it. If you'd like to hear more from Jeremy Avers and also see some of the applications he has developed together with Ultimaker customers worldwide, please visit Ultimaker.com's food and beverage applications page and sign up to watch the recording of his excellent global webinar where he goes through key areas where 3D printing is making a difference right now in these businesses. This is Matt Griffin, host of Talking Additive, Ultimaker's 3D printing podcast. Through interviews with top innovators, partners, and allies, this series offers a chance to learn from those who have experienced firsthand the impact of additive manufacturing. Let's keep this conversation going, just like the 3D printing labs all across the world that have remained open and fully operational during these complicated times. Enjoy our show. We'd appreciate it if you would post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. For our next guest, we hop across the English Channel to join industry 3D design and additive manufacturing adoption consultant Steve Cox from the UK. Steve is a 34-year industry veteran himself from the automotive sector who left his role at Jaguar Land Rover to work directly with major global and British manufacturing clients within traditional manufacturing, who have drawn on Steve's past decade of additive manufacturing expertise to help them test the waters of additive manufacturing. Steve is something of a triple threat himself, high-level industry veteran, additive manufacturing expert, and 3D CAD design expert. And he draws on his skills in all three areas to make a real difference for his clients across the UK and beyond. First of all, thank you so much for joining, Steve. Really appreciate you taking the time to spend with us to talk about 3D printing and industry and food and bev and, and all the things you're up to. That's great, Matt. It's great to be part of Talking Additive. Uh, so I'm Steve Cox. I describe myself as a 3D technologies consultant, which is a bit of an umbrella term really for a whole wide range of activities that I'm involved with. But broadly speaking, I'm, I'm really about trying to help industry and education understand the opportunities for digital design and digital fabrication and how that's changing the landscape for manufacturing. A lot of my consultancy work really is about sharing knowledge uh, and that's really the, the core of my role is basically understanding some of the opportunities uh, that this technology presents and hopefully passing that on to industry and getting them enthused into it. And you had been working in industry for in specifically in automotive for a long time before this. 
Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I spent uh, over 30 years working in the automotive industry. Uh, I, I joined Jaguar Cars, as it was then, straight from school. And I was with them for the next 34 years. And ultimately, when I left, it was Jaguar Land Rover, a much bigger company, very, very successful with a huge product range. So, so yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in design and manufacturing in my career. And you've had the opportunity in your recent consulting and interactions with companies, working with some companies that are exploring additive manufacturing for the first time as well. Yes, yeah. And and they're the ones that really excite me because they tend to be blank canvases, don't really understand what additive manufacturing and 3D printing can do for them. And it's really great to open their eyes to some of the opportunities out there. Do you want to share a little bit about the kinds of companies that you've talked to in this space who have been considering additive? Yeah, it's, it's quite a wide range, really. Uh, I mean, if I look back over the five years that I've been doing this consultancy work, I think it's really only in the last two years we've really seen a significant awakening out in industry uh, and understanding what role additive manufacturing and, and 3D printing can play. I think for the first three years of that five years, it was it was a pretty tough sell. And I'm not sure whether that was industry not seeing this as either a a serious proposition for them or something that that perhaps wasn't relevant to them. But I think what's really helped is the case studies, especially by those sort of the big companies that we've seen in the last two, two and a half years. And, And they've been across a number of verticals. And I think they've proved to be the real turning point in industry suddenly starting to grasp what 3D printing and additive manufacturing can do. And one of the things I'm really keen on above everything else is it's not about the technology of additive manufacturing and 3D printing for me. It's about applications. So searching out those applications with companies and industry is the real exciting part for me. Uh, And it's interesting to see how so many different diverse industries can actually utilize 3D printing and additive manufacturing in what they do in maybe ways that they they don't recognize themselves. And and hopefully that's where, where I come in. Before, about two years ago, it was a harder sell to introduce people to additive manufacturing. Yep. And you're saying that these case studies, some of these examples out in industry have, have really been persuasive. Do you find that when you're meeting companies for the first time that they have stumbled on some of these stories? Or do you need to sort of walk them in and wow them to what's possible? Uh, it's a bit of a mixture of both. I think there's maybe a little bit of word of mouth thing going on, but there's definitely been instances where people have seen some of these case studies and recognize that, hang on a second, if these big companies are using this technology and it's at that price point, why can't we adopt it as well? And and I think that's that's the key thing, really, because it's, it's quite easy to demonstrate very high value rate of return on a quite affordable investment. And that, that really does help that sell uh, a lot easier. Uh, what are some of the case studies that um, you find clients really responding to? I think we're talking around the food and drink industry. I think maybe that's one that people automatically would not think has got anything to do with additive manufacturing and 3D printing. It's a vertical that that perhaps people just... Yeah, I think some of that is a fixation on 3D printing, additive manufacturing. It's about making the end product. And it's so very much not always about making the end product. And and I think the food and drink industry have really grasped the opportunity that's out there for using it. So I think 
this industry that we're talking about today is is one of the real interesting ones because people just don't imagine that this is an industry that would be a, a heavy adopter of additive manufacturing and 3D printing. So taken as a whole, what are some trends of these past two years you're talking about that you've been observing as far as manufacturers adopting FFF 3D printing technology? Some of these traditional companies are looking at the big brands trying this stuff, and so they're willing to try it. What are some things that they've been taking up? And then from that, let's talk about what specifically food and beverage has been excited about. I think you know one of the big things is this fixation that people have had about additive manufacturing, 3D printing. It's about manufacturing product, and it's about manufacturing a product that you're then going to sell. And I think the big transformation that we've seen and the big enabler that's happened over the last two, two and a half years is people in industry being able to recognize that it plays a part as what I'd call an enabler as part of the product development and product manufacturing process. So in product development, it can be a rapid prototyping uh, tool, and it's it's been that since it first came about 30-odd years ago. But in the last two and a half years, I think people have understood it as an enabler in product manufacturing. And that's predominantly around jigs, fixtures, checking aids, that kind of thing. And again, those kind of case studies that that have come out showing that have really indicated, I think, to people that it's not about making that final product. It can be about utilizing this in a way that can be easily used very quickly implemented and has a real value in in assisting the manufacturer of a product. You are out there talking with companies on the ground. What are some of the elements that you've really seen food and drink customers grabbing up that's really making a difference for them? I think it's interesting for for this industry because it it was never, ever going to be about the final product for them. Outside of a few kind of startups and research products looking at producing 3D printed food. It was never going to be about utilizing additive manufacturing and 3D printing for the final product for them. And maybe that's allowed them to be a little less fixated by that and and a bit more open-minded to where it can be used. And what's really amazed me is is the breadth of applications that they've managed to find inside of their production facilities where they can apply this technology. I think one of the big advantages you know, of people becoming self-sufficient and being able to generate their own solutions really quickly has been probably one of the most powerful things. You know, production engineers have problems that they face every day and very often they've, they've got to go to somebody else to do a design and then get that manufactured by someone else to uh, attempt to solve that problem. I think one of the, the key things that I've really seen um, on a generic level is the ability now of production engineers to understand the problem and they're directly engaged with creating the solution and they can try that solution really quickly. And if it fails, at least you fail fast and then you can try something else. And I think it's that aspect, without giving too many details away about specific case studies, it's that democratization, if you like, of manufacturing down closer to the user that's been really influential, I think, in this sector. That begs the question, now that these new roles are using 3D printing and using it to solve problems, Mm -hmm. how are they skilling up to create those parts? 
That's a really good question, Matt. One of the companies that I've been involved with is a company that's a household name. It's involved in fast-moving consumer goods. And some of the consultancy work I did with them was involved with actually training their production engineers to be able to create the 3D designs to solve the problems that they identify. So these people who, you know, generally they're not CAD engineers. That's really been the kind of role of the design department, not so much the production engineering department. But now you can actually skill those production people up to be able to create 3D designs and then very rapidly get them on a machine and try them out. And during the training that I ran in this particular example, in amongst the training, they presented me with a problem that they got that they couldn't solve. And we kind of sat together and we worked through it. And in about an hour and an hour and a half, we created a design and we got it on the uh, Ultimaker 3. And by the end of the afternoon, we got a part that we could try and it was successful in solving the problem that in this case they'd had for two over two years. What are some additional values that 3D printing brings to a company by bringing in-house this capability and and, uh, arming these production engineers with the ability to make parts? I think when you just bring everything so much closer to the point of use, you get much more engagement from the people who not only understand the problem, but potentially can unlock the solution. So I think rather than going through this kind of supply chain of passing the problem on to a production engineer who then has to interpret that, maybe then has to put that out to an outside agency, get them to understand it, and then come up with a design, and then it goes back through that process. I think when you insert this technology so close to the point of use, you really cut out a lot of that supply chain, the opportunities for miscommunication, the opportunities for for things not to work exactly as they should. I think instead you get something that is much more focused uh, and hopefully delivers a solution in a much faster turnaround time than you traditionally get. And one of the things I talk about in, in my consultancy work is there's a lot of hard savings associated with adopting additive manufacturing and 3D printing. But there's a lot of soft savings as well, things that people don't normally see. If you've got to engage with an outside design agency, you've got to raise an order on them, you've got to pay them, they've then got to do the work, they've got to send that in, you've got to pay them. All that back office stuff is is adding, you know, to to the mix and it's adding to to the cost. You bring it in-house, you really shorten that supply chain and you take out some of those soft costs as well as hopefully generating a hard cost saving. Um, So to start with the supply chain, several of our food and beverage customers, both top enterprise brands and suppliers, have mentioned that the supply chain has been more unstable for the past year or two and that they expect this trend to continue. This has uh, you know, a lot to do with you know, global logistics, elements being produced everywhere, being rushed everywhere. What is your impression of the supply chain stability in the current period, this COVID-19 disrupted period? And where do you think the supply chain is going to go in the wake of this? I think when we look at supply chains and, and the world of manufacturing, I think maybe over the last 10, 15 years, uh, especially with things like globalization, There's been a a real intense focus on steady state, highly cost optimized, very efficient manufacturing processes. And a lot of that's been driven by lean thinking, which has been excellent. It's driven the cost down in a lot of things. It's driven waste out of the system. 
Um, and, that, and that's been fantastic. But I think what we've seen over maybe the last 12 months and more particularly over the last three is when that steady state gets disrupted, which, as you mentioned, maybe has started before even the pandemic, and the pandemic has probably shattered the steady state, then that manufacturing model is really very difficult to pivot. It's, it's so locked down, so tight. There's no room for any kind of wriggle room in that model that when something out of the ordinary happens, like the pandemic, it's very difficult to actually switch that supply chain around or remodel it or tweak it even to suddenly react to that and, and make it more resilient. And, and I think that's that resilience thing is the thing that sticks in my mind as much as anything else, that supply chains have been shown up to be not that resilient in the face of a disruption like we've just seen. What we've found in talking to some customers is that the trickier stuff is actually the supplies for in the facilities for operating the equipment, repairing the equipment, keeping the lines going, changing the lines, things like this. And that some of that can be a trickier stopper even than they might expect. If they lose a part that they need to run the line, they just shut it down mm -hmm. and they shut it down for weeks. Yeah. And that that is even a worse deal than like waiting on some elements to run. Uh, you might have everything there. And with Food and Bev, you might have some timelines on getting that through to, to packaging. I mean, one reflecting on the kind of food and beverage industry in light of the recent pandemic in the run-up to this particular interview, I was thinking about the food and beverage industry has not had the luxury of, of some other industries of just being able to shut down temporarily. If anything, everybody's wanted more food and beverage during this during this lockdown than previously. And, and that's put enormous pressure, I guess, on the sector because it's not a case where they can just send people home. They, they need to keep producing. So their supply chain has to be able to manage this this problem and still keep going. So if you do get an issue where a line breaks down or a part you know, needs replacing, and your supplier is one of those manufacturing companies that has taken the, the the option to close down. Where do you go for that spare part? Especially if you can't afford to shut down that line because the demand is there from the big retailers for, for you to keep pushing that food and beverage through their supply chain. So I think this is an industry maybe unique amongst several, I suppose, in this pandemic that that's not had the luxury of sitting back and going, okay, well, we'll just stop what we're doing for three months. They, they've not been able to do that. And I guess they've had to find ways around it. I would imagine that those food and beverage companies that have adopted additive manufacturing and 3D printing have been way more resilient and, and way more capable of actually dealing with any kind of production line breakdown by dealing with it internally than they could if they hadn't adopted the technology. It looks like there there is an uptick in people looking to solve some of these problems. Their staff is energized about bringing in-house these capabilities and making their jobs more creative. So you've seen those big companies now passing down what they found and how they've adopted this technology to their tier one suppliers because... My, my time in industry was very much about we were heavily into lean and we expected all of our tier one suppliers to adopt the same philosophy. So our Ultimaker seen that kind of push down from the big companies down to the smaller companies and, and showcasing how they've used it. 
that's really exciting to us. I mean, not just because we, we would like to support more tier one suppliers, but also because there's some pretty interesting possibilities there. If you look at the trajectory for what you can solve in-house within a big brand, within a particular facility, it's already really exciting. But then if you extend it and you think, okay, well, if that big manufacturer and their suppliers are able to exchange digital files as well as parts and find solutions that can be these really tight feedback loops, it looks from our perspective that this can really accelerate the industry as a whole. And not not just in a kind of a buzzword kind of way, but like literally speed up the process of problem solving and improve optimization. So we're really hoping to encourage this and we're excited where we do see it. But finding out if this is a trend or just the very happy byproduct of a couple of top brands that have pushed additive manufacturing as a core value to them, uh, so then their their supply network pretty much have to pay attention. I, I'm curious to see if some of the traditional companies that you're talking to uh, are starting to realize maybe this isn't just a solution that they want to have on site there, but maybe some of their close allies when th- there might be other roles for additive in how they do business. Yeah, I think I think if you're a big company, I think the attitude these days is not so much when your supplier comes to you at the end of every year asking for a price increase, you tell them to go away and come back with a price decrease. That's that's a kind of natural state of things these days that, that people don't want to see rising costs, they want to see costs constantly reducing. And I think if you're a if you're a responsible big company, then you should get your arms around your tier 1 and maybe even your tier two and beyond and, and kind of cascade down what you've learned and how you've applied some of these new technologies to help them achieve that price reduction that's really going to help you. That seems like a great opportunity and a, a way for a supplier to also show increased value, mm-hmm. like they're better understanding the processes and uh, better targeting them to that specific customer. Yeah, and, and if it makes their tier one more resilient, that's better for them. No one wants to see collapsing supply chains around them because that's that, that's a real difficult thing to deal with. And I guess it might be something that we see something of over these next six months, unfortunately. But strengthening your supply chain, your tier one, tier two, tier three supply chain, making it more resilient, I think is a key thing that people really need to be looking at, especially in light of what's just happened. I think running kind of workshops where you can invite your supply chain in, show them what you've done, show them how you've adopted 3D printing, additive manufacturing, show them and share with them in confidence some of the perhaps benefits from a cost point of view that um, have been realized by using that technology. What I find in my consultancy work is a conversation starts talking about part A and somehow or other in five minutes you're talking about part B, which is nothing like what you thought might be an application, but someone has suddenly seen this connection between what's happened there with part A, hang on a minute, we could actually apply that to this part, couldn't we? And then you can start having that exploratory conversation about, well, yes, you could, because you could you could use this, you could do that, you could try this. And, and very quickly, it kind of widens out, I think, into a really broad conversation. So these kind of efforts you're, you're talking about of discovering things you can do in-house, uh, helping manufacturers see beyond 3D printing as producing the end part, 
where do you see these these kinds of innovations expanding out to manufacturing as a whole? I think I think there's just a lot to go at based around some of the case studies and things that people have already done. I know we we first get into these companies looking to see where we can apply this technology on easy wins if, where you've got you know a very low complexity solution but with quite a high value return on implementing that solution. I think what we've seen over the last two and a half years is we've started to unwrap that particular onion now and we're starting to see that there's an awful lot of scope out there to do that kind of low complexity, high value implementation of 3D printing and additive manufacturing. Uh, but I think in the longer term, I think what, what, what potentially is going to open up is the fact that we can start tackling some of the more difficult, maybe high complexity things but perhaps those have got even higher value as, as we move forward with this technology. Do you have some examples of what you have in mind? That sounds very interesting to me. In one area I'm, I'm really involved with and very passionate about using is generative designs. I've done quite a bit of work with Autodesk um, in and around generative design, which has included just over two years ago, I created a wheelchair that was um, built around a, a generative de uh, design frame. It's, it's a really interesting technology for me. And I, I think there's opportunities there where generative design can actually create you know, a, a higher complexity solution, but potentially offers even higher value. I mean, it's got some fantastic advantages in terms of light weighting. So if light weighting is, is important to you, and often light weighting is more important than people think, especially when they think about an application that's somehow using energy. The lighter you can make a part, the less energy you're going to use actually moving that part around. So some of those higher complexity designs that the generative design can actually produce, some of the things I think could unlock that higher complexity but much higher value proposition as, as we move forward. A lot of these concepts I associate more with aerospace, where, where the cost of that weight is uh, such a significant part of everything that aerospace is willing to spend a lot of money and uh, try a lot of technologies to try to bring those weights down to, to lower the overall impact and, and cost of a vehicle, for example. We've talked online over the last couple of weeks about some of the opportunities in other fields, including food and beverage. And in fact, in the last episode with IGUS, Nicholas was challenging folks to find ways to take these extremely high cycle parts from automation lines and explore them for light weighting and solutions like that. I think one of the interesting things about generative design is that you know, it naturally automatically gravitated to, well, aerospace are going to be the, the big users of this technology. They're going to be the early adopters. They're really going to make the most of this and, and literally make it fly. The reality, I think, has been somewhat different. And I think some of the, the issues there are still around certification in aviation. People would much rather stick with a part that's tried, trusted, and certified then go off and explore something radically different, which might, you know, or might not work, even though it does perhaps generate a, a big potential fuel saving. And the aviation industry is in a lot of turmoil at the moment, again, because of the pandemic. <clears throat> and even before that, the Boeing issues that, that have arisen over the last, you know, 12 months have probably made that industry even more risk averse. So I think from a generative point of view, 
we do need to go out and explore some of these other applications, these other industries that, again, maybe don't think about lightweighting being a part of what they do. But if we start talking about sustainability and we start talking about lowering energy use and lowering, lowering you know, your carbon footprint, then we're probably going to have to start making much better use of materials, more efficient use of materials, do much more lightweighting. And I think the scope for generative is out there in, in a whole number of sectors. And it was inter- really interesting listening to um, Nicholas's interview in the in the IGIS episode because he mentioned something that completely sparked with me because it was an application I'd already talked to someone about in the kind of consumer goods manufacturing industry. And it's it's kind of reignited that that thought at the back of my mind that, yeah, generative could be a real potential application in in this particular instance and it's something i'm currently in the middle of of actually investigating oh that's that's great so you've you've taken up the challenge i've taken up the challenge yeah yeah. it's like (laughs) yes it's it's something that you're already interested in but i i really i i think what you said there makes a lot of sense it's some of these technologies and tools that people first imagined in terms of the the most difficult and most constrained parts of industry, they're now realizing, oh, actually, uh, you can explore this in a huge range of scenarios and and really extract what is the value that you find from uh, generative design, mm-hmm. uh, so lightweighting, part reduction, et cetera. It really does map to a lot of industry. And as industries such as food and beverage that have been fairly traditional because extremely high speed processing, et cetera, they're now seeing some opportunities to explore this and empower their teams that really know their lines to make parts and find solutions that have never existed before that change the hardiness and flexibility of the whole thing. Modular solutions uh, with these custom fixes. So you bring both things together. You can have a lot of infrastructure all set to change and, and to do whatever you need to do as long as you have these stopgap measures so you can solve something very specific you see in front of you in the real world. So I'm, I'm really hoping to see uh, more exploration in this area. Yeah, I, th- I think another thing with generative is that uh, there's a, an obvious weird aesthetic sometimes associated with generative design parts. And maybe that, that would make adoption in a customer-facing application you know, directly, perhaps a bit of a shock of the new and maybe something that people would kind of reel back from a little. But in these kind of supporting enabler type of applications that we've talked around in some of the sectors that that have adopted 3D printing and additive manufacturing, the customer never sees it. But the customer feels the benefit of it because it's reduced the energy cost or the material usage of the industry that's actually adopted that particular piece of design. If I go back to the wheelchair example I created back in 2018, generative design at that time was absolutely brand new. It literally just left the rank. And it, it was a showcase really to say, look, this technology is out there now. And maybe you could apply it to sectors that you wouldn't automatically think of. And if you think about the the kind of disability wheelchair market, lightweight is just as important to those users as it is to someone flying an aeroplane. If, if you're in a wheelchair, you want to be using as least 
manual power as possible to get yourself around. Or if you're in a, a, a powered option, then obviously you want to go further on each charge of, of the battery that's on board. So that wheelchair project was about kind of throwing generative out there saying, you know, look, at this isn't just about aerospace. This can be applied you know, across a whole range of sectors. COVID-19 is not necessarily over, <laughs> as is even even more cl- clear in, in my country. Yeah, same here. But yeah. So there will be there will be more complexity and disruption here. What are your thoughts about the changing role of 3D printing in the manufacturing ecosystem as COVID-19 continues and it ends and we have the, the time that follows? I, th- I think we've got so much to go at, I think, just based on how some of the people who've already adopted the technology have, have used it and what they've done with it means that you know that can be replicated on on a much wider scale so i think it in some ways in the short term it's about doing more of what we've already done with it rather than kind of pushing the boundaries out there but in the longer term then i'm sure we'll be looking for you know even more complex higher value solutions but as we move out of this situation that we're currently in i'm kind of hoping that people do recognize the value in additive manufacturing and 3D printing. And I, I know Talking Additive is, and, and Ultimaker are talking a lot about distributed manufacturing. And it's kind of interesting, I think, in, in COVID-19 to see the world's first big experiment in distributed manufacturing with the manufacture of PPE going on around the globe. And it's kind of uncovered some of the really good things about that. And it's probably uncovered some of the difficult things about it. So maybe the COVID thing has perhaps heightened people's awareness of 3D printing and additive manufacturing. So when we do start returning back to something maybe approaching normal, although my own personal view is we shouldn't be going back to normal, we should be going back to better, that, that they, they recognize that, oh, I heard about 3D printing. It did some quite cool stuff in, in terms of dealing with a supply shortage. Perhaps that could help me. And, and I think that's, in the very short term, I think it's, like I say, about doing more of what we've already been doing, but also maybe now with this flavor that we've got that says, do you realize how it could make your supply chain more resilient? Do you realize how you could become your own supplier? And, and sometimes you can't beat being your own supplier. You can start applying this everywhere. Thanks again to additive adoption and 3D design expert Steve Cox for joining us. To find out more about his work, visit him on Twitter at SteveCox3D or at his LinkedIn page. Our final guest today on Talking Additive is the longtime additive consultant and journalist, Joris Peels, executive editor at 3dprint.com and co-host of the 3D Pod podcast, who leverages 12 years of deep experience, knowledge, and understanding of additive manufacturing to help us put the opportunities with the food and beverage manufacturing industry into context. So what have you been seeing as the evolving role of FFF 3D printing technology in manufacturing? Additive is kind of seeping up from the bottom in a lot of industries, and one of them is food and beverage and FMCG and industries like that. In these industries, what we're seeing is that the people on the floor, so it's, it's not coming from the sea level on down. Instead, it's a solution-driven approach by the guys, women on the concrete floor. And they have to mind a, a sea of machines with red lights on them, and they are turning to 3D printing for solutions. Essentially, it's a stopgap measure, or it's one problem that they have. 
and then somebody has a printer at home or they buy one in one plant somewhere and they kind of gradually use it for more and more things. Uh, so this is a bottom-up kind of growth of, of these kind of approaches. So essentially what I like about this is that 3D printing is used as most cost-effective with FDM or FFF, if you want to call it, and it's used with very cost-effective systems that are very local and that are used for spare parts. And they're also used to kind of like improvise parts where there's a light button that always keeps breaking, so somebody redesigns this button to make it easier for people with gloves to not break the button. It's kind of improvised engineering that's not anywhere in a manual, that's not directed by the, the leader of the plant, but it's the, the people on the concrete floor that are, that are coming up with these solutions. Then we're seeing jigs and fixtures, which is, of course, a very famous case we always turn to, but with shorter-run products and more variable portfolios and things like that. Also in FMB or in FMCG industries, we're seeing a lot more kind of jigs and fixtures, and these kind of solutions pop up as well. In packaging, it's, of course, been used a lot on the prototyping side, mainly in technologies such as PolyJet and, and uh, to a certain extent, SLA, FFF, and stuff like that. There, we saw a lot of people would make the mock-ups of certain things or new products or, or new kind of packaging concepts. But now what we're seeing is much more also an improvised thing, like they have to stack a new box right on a pellet. And then this new box doesn't fit the, the pellet exactly right. So they make kind of, I guess it's like a pellet jig or something. So they come up with like a pellet jig so that oh, they can stack the boxes very, very quickly, much quicker on this pellet. And, and, and then they save some time. And it's not really something that's in the grand narrative of this factory, or it's not something in this, we're going to 3D print all the tacos or something. It's much more about like some person having a really direct problem that needs a hardware solution. So people are looking at this in, in Africa and other kind of more remote areas where spare parts are a problem. And they're looking at, okay, can we, for this one plant in this one area, can we print spare parts? Can we, for this one plant in this area, print some improvised kind of production line improvements? And I think that's one of the interesting things. My, my favorite example of this still is actually a metal printing thing. Is a Kaak Group, and Kaak Group uh, is a Dutch bakery line companies like they make like lines that make like 10,000 croissants an hour you know those things and uh, they have these knives to cut the dough and what the group did is they said okay we have these knives that cut this dough and now we're going to lightweight this knife so it can actually move faster so now we're making the entire bread line this machine move faster and then that's one thing. And I think, okay, that kind of lightweighting of components, that's something I never thought of, actually, by the way, as, as, as something that may have a, a big application area. Uh, but for these guys, it does. Then they did another thing, and they, they hollowed out this knife, and then they made kind of nozzles on the inside of it so they can blow compressed air through it, and it cleans itself of the dough. And then actually it can do more cycles, and it cuts cleaner so there's less uh, wastage of, of this bread dough. So now we're, we're looking at, at, at applying 3D printing to the tip of the spear. We're saying, where does this, this entire gigantic machine, where does it make sense to apply the technology? And that's essentially in this cutting process is one area that they thought of. That's, again, non-obvious, but very important to them. Now we can make the machine go faster. We can waste less dough. We make it more efficient. At the same time, with one part, a lot of people who are designing customized lines for things like packaging, like extrusion lines for making cookies or, or, or all sorts of other things, are turning this technology because these things are low-volume machines. So if you're looking at these really big machines for making pizzas, right, frozen pizzas, and these kind of things, these really complicated lines, there's a lot of customization going on. 
People have different pizza sizes. One wants a New York type pizza. One wants a, a frozen pizza. The other one wants a fresher one or something like that. So they all have to be kind of customized. They all have to be installed in different types of locations. So for these kind of like really uh, high level kind of improvements to these lines, these guys and, and machine builders in general were already turning to 3D printing because they're in a high mix, low volume environment. They make like six devices per year or whatever, right? So for them, there may be certain parts on this device, brackets, which we don't really think of printing a bracket or a housing. But think about how many housings or brackets are there going to be on one of these pizza lines or something like that. Like quite a lot. But they only make six products a year, let's say, or 100 maybe. So that's not a lot of high volume of product. And it doesn't really make sense for them if they redesign this thing to make it as a molding part. Especially if maybe the Italian law is different than the Japanese one and they have to change it anyway. There's still a gulf between the guys on the floor that are printing improvised solutions. We have a bottle line, right? And the bottle line sends these bottles careening down this one thing. And once every, you know, 100,000 bottles, one falls off. So we're going to make a little kind of knob there to stop that bottle falling off. And then we save one bottle per 100,000. Improvised solutions. And then there's other kind of directed engineering efforts, mainly by kind of family-owned or kind of unknown firms that are turning this technology to really improve and manufacture these really complicated, really, really large room-filling devices. So that's actually quite interesting. And there's people looking at spare parts. There's people looking at, at parts of customizing these lines so that they can make a version of it that's actually much cheaper to make a second version than they, than they would normally uh, be able to make. They wouldn't have to redevelop the whole thing. They would have to just change the components that make sense for them to change. So to me, that that is also a very, very exciting kind of thing. We see that generally in machine building. Like like German Mittelstand type companies are really driving innovation here by trying to stay ahead of the commoditization of their businesses through increased customization, increased applicability to the market, and increased response, right? If the square Roman pizzas are popular, they will be the first to come out with a line that, that caters to making the frozen version of these pizzas. And that's key to survival. These business owners are turning to 3D printing for advantage for a key part of them staying ahead of the market. I wanted to go back to one of the first things you brought up, which is the floor-up nature of adoption in automation and packaging of additive manufacturing. I'd love to hear some more about that. Why do you think that 3D printing is so appealing to them? That in a standardized environment, people are encountering a lot of problems they don't have a solution for. It's a hardware problem, or it's a problem where, where the missing piece, the missing puzzle piece, is literally a thing, right? And so what, what do you do? Then you design and you print this thing and there's only one of them in the whole world. And then what's the best technology to make that in this 3D printing? So it's, it's the individual worker, the individual engineer, and she's on the factory floor and she has a very uh, specific thing. There's a door in the factory. The factory is 110 years old, right? There's a door and it, it keeps hitting the, uh, the wall. Right, uh, So they keep making noise and part of the factory don't want to make noise. So then she makes a part to stop this door hitting them. It's one door and one location, one particular geometry, one particular part. And that part size solution, if you will, that geometry yeah, is unique. So, so, so and, and, and the disconnect, the reason it doesn't happen more is that there's not a lot of overlap in these process engineer type people, the floor supervisor, the, the engineering manager people, and 3D modeling ability. These uh, people also don't often have a lot of 3D models on staff. They don't have that kind of a person. They've got electrical engineers. They've got process engineers. They've got 
all sorts of maintenance engineers and all this, but they don't have a 3D modeler. So the reason it doesn't happen more often is the fact that they can't make the geometries they want to make because they don't have 3D modeling in-house. And when you see is that there's a rare occasion that somebody had in college also a mechatronics engineer who's also working at the plant who does have a CAD background or they have somebody who is working in marketing or in the design department that'll help them out. And that's usually kind of in a very ad hoc way that this, this happens. Because, yeah, maintenance engineering, I don't know, is, to the best of my knowledge, don't have like AutoCAD classes or whatever, or enough of them to be able to make these parts uh, all the time. So why FFF? Part of it is it's the most accessible technology, of course, and it's the cheapest. There is a wide uh, amount of materials that people can turn to. And PLA, we, we always like to be kind of very negative about PLA. <laughs> it's a terrible material, and it's, why is everybody using it? It's horrible. But PLA is actually, the heat deflection is horrible, of course, but it's actually kind of a quite tough material that it's actually kind of works for, for this kind of application. And especially for out-of-use parts, so we have a big uh, gigantic machine, and we have a part that's meant to break anyway. You have these parts that are engineered to be consumables or break so that something else doesn't break. <laughs> these kind of parts, PLA is fine. So the first solution, and often I mean, I've been to like companies where it's like literally you know, somebody's nephew or something does it, which not, of course, it's, it's super non-standard, right? It's not supposed to happen. This is not supposed to happen at Volkswagen. This is not supposed to happen at, at, uh, at uh, these really large food companies. But it does happen, and it starts within the stuff that's kind of, outside the ISO environment or outside the, 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 the regulated environment. This is why in a lot of things like jigs and fixtures and yeah, things like a doorstop might seem really stupid, but it's a really nice introduction to the technology. It's a really nice way to, to kind of get comfortable with it before you do put it in this really super certified environment. And it's really what we want to do with the technology. I think a lot of the hobbyists came to it because they were curious because they like machines, or designers come to this technology because they like to make things. But we see uh, the solution-oriented approach is really what leads to the big business models and leads to the really big applications. With these improvised, bottom-up kind of factory approaches, well, a 3D printer is a device. There's in excess of a million, maybe two million 3D printers in the world. So you can find it. You can order it on 3D hubs or whatever. This is a technology that's accessible. In some cases, it's really funny because it's not a really widespread technology, but it's easier to find a service to give you a part, or it's easier to find a cousin or something to give you a part in 3D printing than it is to get like a CNC part often. The CNC part, the whole process of getting a quote is actually a little bit more complicated and you have to have an engineering drawing or something. You know, if you go to 3D hubs or Shapeways or something like that, you just upload it and boom, you'll have a price. Right. If you go to uh, your 3D modeling cousin or the guy in marketing who had a 3D modeling class, that person can very quickly kind of say that they can make that object and, and that you can have that object quite quickly as well. So that's the advantage of using uh, FFF as a technology in particular is the parts are tough and durable and inexpensive. And then you're looking at a consumable cost that is well within the range of spare parts generally. And we always think of our materials as being expensive, but for relatively small objects like 40 bucks a kilo or $20 a kilo, it's actually not a big deal. You know, the thing you're making is 50 grams, 100 grams, or something like that. The price is actually quite low compared to what they would pay for the industrial replacement part. So then, all of a sudden, with FDM, a lot of these spare parts actually start to make a lot of sense financially as well. To go durable technology, maybe it's not pretty, but hey, it works. And it's as affordable for us to implement. And we can do that one unique geometry. And that's, I think, very interestingly, the technology being actually applied 
And then the engineer gets more comfortable. She then says, okay, I can do it for this doorstop, right? I can do it for this jig we needed for that one project we did with the Christmas whipped cream bottles, right? Where it was weird and non-standard, right? And we did that, that, the edge case, right? Okay, now what can we do to this to optimize it? What can we do this to get it closer to the, the TOC, to get it closer to the, the process? And so it's kind of like people who really slowly get their feet wet in the pool, kind of stand on the ladder and then get a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. And this approach is, is much more different than the sea level driven kind of, it's, it's strategic for us as a MRO parts company to do 3D printing. And, and the other thing is that Mary, who is in charge of optimizing the supply chain is saying, hey, we had a problem with one in a hundred thousand bottles falling off of the line. Now, ta-da, we don't have that problem anymore. We make 10 less mistakes per million. Okay. Now, now you've got everyone's attention in that environment, right? Uh, now all of a sudden everybody's listening. And then you're something that, that can help rather than something that the bosses are forcing you to do, right? I love this approach to leveraging this technology for trying ideas in a low-stake but potentially high-value experiment. Now, there's two different things here that I'm seeing. These are trends that have been going on for a number of years. And they've been very, I think it's really interesting you picked up on that because a lot of people have. Because one is what I call discussion tools. And that's been not happening a lot. And that is the idea that I think is super advantageous for a salesperson to bring a first version of something to their customers to get buy-in early on. And then for engineering and R&D to, from internal customers and external customers to get them to understand. The idea of having discussion parts so that everybody understands what's going to happen, that understands what Project Sahara 2020, whatever, <laughs> what they're actually changing, is, is really very advantageous. And the earlier on you can get in buy-in in that process in an institutional kind of element, right, the better it is. So there's discussion tooling, and there's also kind of like applying it for insulation or applying it for maintenance or looking at it from a perspective of, of getting buy-in from the people that are actually going to be working for it. So the designer of it, she gets to talk to the, the guy on the floor who's actually supposed to replace this part, and he's going to say, yeah, but I need to be able to get my screwdriver in there, Right. And that, if you're getting with really complicated machinery and, and chemical in other industries, then that becomes very interesting. And that's what's really interesting is the discussion tool is something very natural, and that happens by coincidence. The people I know that are doing this, it just happened by coincidence that somebody was actually working on the prototype, and they actually like took it to a meeting and was like, guys, this is what we're going to do, right? And it's kind of it's not a deliberate thing. It's not like something somebody read in the Harvard Business Review or something, and they're doing it as a practice. But it's just something that happened one day. Sarah brought the part, part to the meeting, and then some organizations actually do, adopt this. And the other thing, like the the kind of like validating tooling, tooling performance in real life or something, that's something that happens in very particular industries for or very particular cases that people have had problems with this, right? And I think for a lot of stuff, especially if it's custom machinery, a lot of the ergonomic factors, you can't take it into account or they never do, right? They just make the thing to make the thing. And now you can start to do ergonomics, like you said before, and this tooling, this walkout stuff. Okay, that might happen in the right industry if that's something that, that, that they have a lot of these safety concerns. But typically having a, a complex machinery that you're adjusting all the time, you're iterating on this line to kind of improve it gradually with small run parts that you can now discuss all together, that, that, that is a huge value. It's, it's not very quantifiable, 
but but I've seen this become like organically kind of a practice in certain companies, which I think is very interesting. Thanks again to Joris Peels from Smart Tech Analysis and 3dprint.com. If you'd like to read more from Joris Peels or catch his excellent podcast series 3D Pod with 3D Doodler co-inventor Maxwell Vogue, please visit his author page as executive editor on 3dprint.com or his LinkedIn profile, both locations offering a nearly endless stream of considered content from his first 12 years focusing on additive technology. We hope that you have enjoyed our eighth episode for the Talking Additive Podcast. This week, a topic-focused show about the food and beverage manufacturing industry. Make sure to visit ultimaker.com to catch the food and beverage manufacturing dedicated landing page within the applications category. There you can learn more and even book a discussion with an Ultimaker expert to explore this further. In two weeks, we return with episode nine, which will explore deeply the role of additive technology within global architectural practice with powerhouse Cone Peterson Fox Associates, KPF, who have taken the innovative approach to bring accessible 3D printers into the design studio across multiple offices in multiple countries to accelerate design processes and communication around projects for buildings of all types and scales and in all geographic regions. We explore these topics and more on Talking Additive. Thanks again to Jeremy, Steve, and Joris for joining us for this episode. Thanks also to series producer Hannah Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos, and a thank you to Brian Scarry and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbird's Custom Music and Sound for the Music and Episode Sound Mix. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you again to our listeners. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.